Hello and welcome to Power Play for this Friday, January 13th. I'm Joyce Napier. Tonight, getting to a health care deal. What will it take to get funding negotiations over the finish line in our provinces eyeing privatization to ease pressure on overwhelmed hospitals? We'll bring in a premier who's also a physician. Then, getting Canada to the world. The government has kicked off 2023 with a focus on international trade. But is Canada prepared to meet global demand? MPs debate. Plus, our Friday press gallery is here with the winners and losers from this week in politics. Healthcare in crisis. As we wait for premiers and the prime minister to meet on healthcare funding, the debate over the private sector's role in healthcare delivery is being renewed this week. There are reports that Ontario plans to turn to private clinics to alleviate the backlog in surgeries. Premier Doug Ford was asked about the use of not-for-profit rather medical facilities in Ontario Wednesday. Take a listen. Well, again, I don't even like the word private because it's really not. You're never, I can assure you, I'm looking into the camera, no Ontario will ever have to pay with a credit card. They will pay with their OHIP card. But if we can take the burden and the backlog off the hospitals and have independent health centers with the same standards, the same actual docs, and for more on this, let's bring in CTV News Queen's Park reporter Siobhan Morris. Hi, Siobhan. Good to see you. What more do we know about what the Premier was just saying, the plans to turn to private medical clinics to help with the backlog and surgeries? What can you tell us about that? Are there any details? Not a lot of detail at this point, Joyce, but the government's really been setting the table for this announcement that we do anticipate to come early next week, really since the summertime. That's when the heat really started to be turned up on the government for this real staffing crunch we were seeing in Ontario hospitals with nurses uh, making up the, the greatest proportion of that, leading to longer wait times for access to care in hospitals. So this seems like a natural evolution of what we've been hearing from the government. Doug Ford has talked about the need for innovation, for bold ideas is when it comes to health care, that the status quo is not sustainable. So we are hearing that uh, there is the possibility that thousands more procedures will be allowed in 13 private clinics across Ontario, uh, focusing on more minor surgeries, things like cataract surgery, eventually hip and knee replacements as well, as well as some diagnostic imaging as well. Yeah, the, the, the hip and knee replacements for it called no-brainers. In other words, he, he already has a, a sort of idea of what kind of surgeries would be offered in these clinics. But how, uh, uh, Siobhan, how are some doctors and medical professionals reacting to this? A lot of the medical professionals I've been speaking with today, uh, some are, I think, using more um, democratic language than others or, or being more charitable to the government. Uh, the president of the Ontario Medical Association says she agrees that they're does need to be bold thinking on clearing this surgical backlog that's somewhere in the neighborhood of a million procedures in Ontario. But she says that any plan has to stick to principles that are important to the Ontario Medical Association, which are publicly funded, uh, clinics that are attached to hospitals, which a private clinic would not be. So she didn't come out and outright pan the plan, but did focus on all these uh, factors that does set what the government seems to be planning to do apart from what they'd like to see. And, and public reaction, Siobhan, have you, have you heard of 
you know, how are people, you know, sort of reacting to this? I think the devil will be in the details when we do eventually see this plan, uh, hopefully early in the, in the next week. I think it's something of a third rail in, in uh, Canadian politics, talking about privatization of health care. So people get their backups, backs up immediately when you hear about it. But we did hear some language from the Premier, which I think there is some truth to, saying that people want care and they're a little less fussed about where they're getting it. I think if you're one of the people who's been waiting weeks, months, years for a delayed procedure, you may feel a little more charitable to the idea of going to a private clinic. Interesting. And we'll know about it more, uh, more about this uh, this coming week. Uh, Siobhan uh, Morris in Toronto, thanks so much. You're welcome. So that's how Ontario plans to take the pressure off their health care system. But how are other provinces planning to fix their own health care crisis? Well, this week on PowerPlay, Alberta Premier Danielle Smith told Vashi Capellas that she's not going to wait around for more federal health money to reform her province's health care system. Listen to this. Look, I mean, I don't believe that I have to sit and wait for the federal government to make up its mind. We, as you know, since I got elected, I believe that my job is to do what's right for Albertans and for us to be exercising our full area of authority. And so that's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm quite happy to join in the voices of the premiers in a project that they started three years ago and saying, let's uh, meet 50-50. But uh, me improving the healthcare system out in Alberta is, is going to be done regardless of whether or not the federal government wants to be a funding partner. So as more provinces are open to accepting federal strings to more health funding, that means conditions, can Canadians afford to wait for governments to get past the political impasse? Let's find out. And joining me now is Newfoundland and Labrador Premier Andrew Fury. Welcome uh, to PowerPlay. Um, Premier, thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm happy to be here, Joyce. Happy New Year to you. Um, and to you too, sir. So, uh, you know, I want to talk about those health care transfers, which, you know, have preoccupied you and your colleagues as we were going off for uh, the holidays back in December. So it That's seems right. that we are inching closer and, you know, inching is probably the operative word here to a deal on uh, health care transfers. Now, so just this week, you know that Ontario and Nova Scotia agreed to conditions for receiving the transfers. So where... Where do you stand and how, you know, where do you stand? Let me first ask you, where do you stand on that? Well, I think, you know, for a, a long time, we've been aligned with the federal government with respect to priorities. Um, I think there's semantics and rhetoric at play uh, and some quick political points to be had along the way, unfortunately. But we've always been talking to the federal government and will continue to on shared priorities. By the way, I don't think they're any different than any other Canadian politician aside would suggest that we should have. And so we've always been talking, whether it's to the Prime Minister himself or to Minister Duclos or Minister LeBlanc, that we have the, we have the wantingness uh, to sit and the need to sit and talk about shared priorities. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, I, my position really hasn't changed. I've always just wanted the discussion, the conversation. Because I can tell you as a provider myself, having sat on the other side of the gurney and delivered bad news, never once in the thousands of patients I've dealt with has anyone ever asked, who's paying for this? Mm -hmm. The federal government 
or the provincial government. Yeah, there's only one taxpayer and one patient, and I think we need to be we need to get past the rhetoric and into solutions. Yeah, that's exactly what the premier of Ontario said this week. But you know, it's shared priorities is all fine. I'm I, I'm sure you share those same priorities with with your colleagues from other provinces. But where do you stand on the conditions on the strings attached? So yes, the federal government will will transfer but only with conditions and strings attached. Are you okay with that? Well, you know, I think that that's simplistic in the approach. I think there is the ability to have shared priorities while preventing jurisdictional creep. I think some of the issues that other premiers and I frankly share, because I don't think the federal government has the desire nor the agency to run a healthcare system. So we want to be able to run a healthcare system with some flexibility. We also recognize that as one taxpayer, there's only one taxpayer, we should be accountable with respect to the delivery uh, of services and the accountability of funds that are transferred. And that can be, the value of that can be unlocked through shared priorities. Um, and I, I think that that's part of the reason we need to be at the table to discuss what the actual mechanisms and logistics are to achieve those shared goals, frankly. Okay, but you, you're, you're talking about shared goals and I understand that, but how do you think it would work? Okay, how does it work oh, if well, just there for, are for, for, strings? Give me, give me one example of yeah, how for, you for think example, it would work. Well, it, it hasn't been fully defined yet. So if, for example, the federal government talks about outcomes. Well, life expectancy is an outcome. Do you want to give us money and in 80 years we'll determine if life expectancy from that investment went up? Or do we want to talk about metrics and where we can move the needle in certain envelopes? I think we all want, for example, surgical wait lists to go down. So if a shared priority is surgical wait lists and some of the funding is tied to efficiencies and, deliver and, and, and enhancing infrastructure to deliver, deliver proper surgical care in a timely fashion, then that's something I'd be perfectly content to sit and discuss. The issue has been over the last six months in particular, there's been, there's been a bit of a gap about what the definitions mean and how we can come together to have those shared priorities so that we all know what we're talking about. So I'm not going to pre be prepared to sit here today and, and discuss things which may not even be what their intent is, but I do think there is the ability to have, as I've said, shared priorities. So shared priorities. If, if, if you were sitting at the table now with your colleagues or with the federal government, what would be your number one priority? Is it wait times? Is that it? Is it, is it mental health? Is it long-term care? What is it? And, and do you well, share I mean, we, those priority with your colleagues? Well, I think, between, I think this may be, um, this is, I think, evident across the country, and I've certainly seen it in my previous life and my practice. There's differences amongst different jurisdictions. So what's a priority for Newfoundland and Labrador may not be the top priority for Quebec or Alberta or British Columbia. I do think, uh, I, I do think that we have priorities that would fall within uh, a, a national shared priorities, whether that be surgical waitlist, access to primary care, improved long-term care, infrastructure enhan enhancement in those envelopes, and uh, access to mental health and addiction services. I think those are, those are things that we want to develop, that, that we need to develop, that we're prepared to put our funding towards incrementally based on what we've achieved in the past, and I think that those should be open discussions with the federal government. But for me to dictate what would be a priority in a different jurisdiction, I think that that's wrong, and that's where you get into jurisdictional creep, which I get no sense, frankly, 
uh, from the federal government that they're interested in. I no, but interested it, it, in. true. And, 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 and first of all, would they even be capable of, of, of doing that? But the question no, is, no but the question is, this sounds just just by listening to you, I'm thinking, OK, this is a process that could take a long time. And I mean, you're a doctor. Um, you know how badly these transfers are needed yep. and you know how badly improvement is needed. So are we going to be yakking about this all year? Do you think that this can be done in an expeditious fashion? I think it can be done quickly. I think it can be done uh, very quickly. I think it doesn't have to be entirely prescriptive. I think that this can be uh, developed jointly uh, with uh, being aligned. I'd, but let me be clear, and I think anyone who sits in any desk and, and looks at you and says, this can be fixed very quickly, is lying. This is, we are at this point in the healthcare system in Canada for a number of reasons, a changing paradigm about the way people want to practice medicine or the delivery of healthcare services and a work-life balance and for different professional and personal goals. We're coming out of a pandemic. We have chronically underfunded the system, I would argue, for quite some time. We have changing demographics. We have changing density and scale within different jurisdictions. And it's the perfect storm. If there was a quick fix, even if it was just monetary, other, other jurisdictions would have done it already. This is a, we need to reimagine a healthcare system that Canadians have trust in, have faith in, believe in, and are proud of. And I think we can achieve that together so that we're not anchored in a system that was designed for the 1960s and being delivered in 2023. One last question, because uh, I, I want to let you go after that is, yeah. so you kind of agree to talking to the feds about strings attached or about conditions to these transfers. If, if, if you agree and other provinces don't agree, do you all have to agree? Does it have to be a unanimous agreement? Or can you negotiate provinces by pr province to province? I'd, I'm trying to figure out if this has to be all of you or if you could negotiate something with the federal government and get the money you need. Well, I mean, technically, uh, legally, um, the federal government is under no obligation to negotiate whatsoever. And we've seen that in the past with other prime ministers. Uh, but I do believe there is unity within the Council of Premiers uh, to achieve the same desired goals, which ultimately is better provision of care for all Canadians. Premier Fury, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Have yourself a great weekend. You too. Take care now. Still to come, from Mexico City to Davos, Switzerland. Is Ottawa doing everything it can to sell the world on Canada's natural resources? The MPs debate. That's next. Stay right here with PowerPlay. And welcome back. The Three Amigos Summit ended with a promise from U.S. President Joe Biden to visit Canada in March. Then, right after getting home from Mexico City, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau met with his Japanese counterpart right here in Ottawa, who pressed Canada on liquefied natural gas, that's LNG. And critical minerals are the name of the game on the world stage right now, and Canada has what the world wants. So, has this country a critical mining strategy, mineral strategy, but is the federal government doing everything it can to aggressively leverage foreign interest. The MPs are here to debate. 
Joining me now are International Trade Parliamentary Secretary Arif Virani and NDP foreign affairs critic Heather McPherson. Unfortunately, the Conservatives did not offer us an MP, so you guys have a lot more time. <laughs> um, Arif and Heather, welcome. Uh, very good to have you on the show. Um, let me ask you, uh, uh, Arif Irani, first. I want to start. I want to. Last year, Natural Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson said Canada welcomes foreign investment, especially from countries like the U.S., Australia, uh, the U.K. But what is Canada doing right now to push to sell, rather, its critical minerals on the international stage and get those foreign investments? Well, I think what we're doing, Joyce, and first of all, Happy New Year to you and to Heather, um, is uh, we are actively engaging in discussions at the highest levels, including at, at summits such as the two that you just mentioned. Um, you can obviously appreciate that as the world moves towards net zero objectives across most of the planet, the race for uh, battery-powered vehicles is on, and battery-powered vehicles necessitate the acquisition of critical minerals. So there's a plentiful demand out there for critical minerals, and what we're seeing is that there's a massive shift globally away from China, as we have demonstrated with our Indo-Pacific strategy, the world is moving away from China, who, who sought earlier on in this process to control a lot of the supply of critical minerals around the planet. But when we're engaging with like-minded allies, we're finding that they are a ready audience for those conversations. So it's not just about taking them out of the ground. It's about ensuring that there's a, a willing partner, a trading ally to sell them to. But it's also about ensuring that we have the ability to refine process and even potentially get to the point where we're manufacturing the batteries here, right here in Canada. So that's what we're moving towards. And you've seen Minister Wilkinson talk about that, Minister Ng talk about that, and the Prime Minister talking about that with his counterparts. Heather McPherson, so, you, mm -hmm. you know, the minister talked about welcoming foreign investors. The word used by the minister really, you know, enough. How do you get the investors to Canada to mine, you know, to, th th there's a huge cost associated, obviously, with this exercise. How do you get those investors? Yeah, well, you know, I mean, first of all, Happy New Year's to, to both of you as well. It's, uh, it's, it's good, to be, good to be back. Nice to see you all. Um, you know, my, my concern is that this government appears to be somewhat tired. They appear to be, you know, I don't see the, the fire in the belly that we need, that Canada needs, the Canadian workers need to ensure that that investment is coming, to ensure that, you know, when we look at developing our trade, um, our trade relationships, that we are doing everything we can to put Canada first, to put Canadian workers first, to put our industry first, uh, uh, you know, at the front of all of this. We do have you know, an enormous opportunity right now. And if we, if we aren't, if we aren't really pushing for it, if we don't have a government that's fighting tooth and nail to get those agreements for us, I'm quite worried that we will lose ground on that. Um, well, get, from, get, from, give me an example. Give me an example of, 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 of quickly, an example of what you're saying. How, how do you see the government not pushing enough? Well, for example, when we go back to the approach that the government took when when they negotiated the the last NAFTA deal, you know, there was there was a all whole of government involved. There was a lot of moving parts. There were a lot of people that were pushing for for this. I don't see that same level of engagement right now. Now, I certainly hope it is happening. I hope it's happening privately. Um, I've always said that the Canadian government has 
abandoned some of the role that we need to be playing in terms of development, in terms of diplomacy. Uh, you know, we, we just haven't been as present on the world stage. We've been absent. And, and, you know, trade is, I've said this before, but trade is like the dessert you get if you do the hard work of diplomacy. You do the hard work of international development. You, you develop those long-term relationships. You know, not having the ambassadors, not having an Indo-Pacific strategy, and just recently having, you know, you know, foreign affairs minister after foreign affairs minister after foreign affairs minister. These are things that don't help Canada as we try to develop these relationships um, and make sure that we have the leverage to to protect Canadian workers. So if I could respond so to that, Joyce. Why not a Team Canada? Like, I, I want you to respond to that, Arif, because why not a Team Canada sort of more aggressive approach? We do have things that the world needs. We heard that from the Japanese Prime Minister for mm -hmm. LNG. So... Why not do it more aggressively? Well, I think we've been doing it aggressively, in fairness, Joyce, and I think we've taken a Team Canada approach, including with NDP and Conservative colleagues. Uh, we had, for example, the former trade minister in the Harper government accompanying us when we were renegotiating NAFTA and turning it into Kuzma. It's a pity that there's no Conservative representative on this panel right now, because at the time when Christia Freeland was leading those negotiations, there were calls in Parliament to just simply take any deal that any deal is better than no deal, and things like the dispute resolution mechanism, which we really stuck our heels into uh, and dug our heels in in terms of making sure that that was maintained, is something that we stood by. Recently, we're talking about critical minerals. That's what you started talking about. That relates to the auto industry. We just had a positive outcome as a result of that very dispute resolution mechanism where we joined with Mexico in challenging but that, but that the rules then, of origin. Arif, that was then, I think, I think what, what Heather McPherson is talking about mm -hmm. is that was then, and I, and I remember I followed uh, the negotiations, but I think what, what Heather McPherson is talking about is now. That, that doesn't seem to be the same approach now. You've got the Japanese prime minister who came. And, and he was very clear. Uh, the American president is coming in March. Uh, what, are we, what are we offering him uh, in terms of those critical minerals? Well, we're offering him the, a stable allied source in a democratic nation that is an ally that shares a peaceful border with a source for providing those critical minerals. But I think the proof is in the facts that, are, that we see before us. We are the only member of the G7 that has a free trading relationship with every other member of the G7. Our trade with the United States reached $1 trillion in 2021. It's never reached such heights. We have a situation where we are defending, Heather talks about being aggressive with respect to industry and labor. Not only are we protecting Canadian workers in the auto sector, we're investing in the rights of labor in Mexico through the Canada-U.S.-Mexico uh, uh, agreement. Those are steps that we've never taken before. When we aggressively took a leadership position, we had Indigenous voices and women's voices at the table when we renegotiated Kuzma. That's showing leadership on the world stage. When the United States abandoned under Donald Trump the Trans-Pacific Partnership, we were there with Japan, and now the United States is effectively playing catch-up with their, uh, with their yeah. IPEF arrangement. I, I, we are part of CPTPP already. That's Canadian leadership in action. Yeah, but okay. I, I want to. I don't have a lot of time left. So, uh, Heather McPherson, I want to look ahead across the world to Davos, Switzerland, for the World Economic Forum. Both Deputy mm -hmm. Minister, Prime Minister Christian Freeland, International Trade Minister Mary Ng will be there. What should they do there to be, like you said, sort of more energetic and more more, more aggressive, if you will? Well, I mean, personally, I. You know, New Democrats don't send people to Davos. That's something that the Conservatives do. You know, this the, but that's the where you could relationship was developed investors. under Harper. 
that's 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 something that the liberals do we've got some stuff that we need to be working on here i don't think talking to those top 600 corporations is going to be helping canadian workers uh you know if they if they're going that's great they should be pushing our pushing our industry pushing our business but on the other hand i think there's some other places where that needs to be happening more and i think it needs to be happening more urgently you know we we talk about our relationship with the united states we our our economy is hugely integrated with the United States, but it's a massive economy. And if we don't have a strong government that's holding its own against the US, the US government when they when they put these these principles in a protectionism, then then that's really a problem. We you know we can't just have equal sort of restrictions. Canada has to be protecting its workers because we are competing in a very uneven playing field with the United States. You know, I look at the cap that's limiting Canadian companies' ability to bid on American products. You know Trudeau has to fix that. He has to convince Biden to fix that because otherwise the implications on our economy are yeah. huge. If we don't get the the equality between what's happening within the auto sector, you know, that will hurt not just Canadian companies, it'll hurt American companies too. We need to be having those discussions. I'm not sure those discussions happen at Davos. I'm not going to Davos. That's not there's no role for the for for me to be there. I think right now we've got a healthcare crisis. I think Canadians are worried about what people like Danielle Smith are doing uh, to our economy. Institution to the to our security. You know, there's there's a lot of things going on here. I'm not sure yeah. Davos is, is top priority That's for true. any other Canadian. True enough, there is a lot of uh, things happening here. Uh, that's unfortunately all the time we have. Arif Virani, Heather McPherson, thanks so much for joining us and have a lovely thanks, weekend. Thank you. See you both later. Coming up, the stories you can't miss this Friday. The list is next. Welcome back to Power Play. This is the list of what's happening today in politics. Home price dip at the end of 2022. The home prices saw a year-over-year -year decline for the first time since 2008. According to a new report from Royal Lepage, the real estate company says the aggregate price of a home in Canada hit $757,000 in the final quarter of 2022. That's down 2.8% compared to the end of 2021. Despite the drop, home prices still remain above pre-pandemic levels. Alberta Premier Danielle Smith facing accusations of interference with her province's justice system. Yesterday, she backed down on a promise to pardon those fined for violating COVID-19 protocols, while implying she'd spoken to Crown prosecutors. But I ask them on a regular basis, um, as new cases come out, is it in the public interest to pursue? And is there a reasonable likelihood of conviction? And so I'll, I'll leave the, the justice system to work, but I, I, do, I do think that's an important lens for us to be looking at these kinds of charges. The Justice Department later issued a statement that appeared to contradict Smith. A spokesperson says the Premier had met with the Attorney General, but has never spoken with Crown prosecutors about any particular legal matter they deal with. And official charges today against the suspect in the assassination of former Prime Minister, Japanese Prime Minister, rather, Shinzo Abe. A mental evaluation of Tetsuya Yamagami found he is fit to stand trial. He was arrested immediately after Abe was shot with a homemade gun 
while giving a campaign speech in July. Police say Yamagami told them he killed Abe because of his apparent links to a religious group he hated. He is charged with murder and violating gun control laws. And confusion and contradictions over a battleground city in Ukraine. Ukrainian officials deny Russia's claim that it has captured the salt mining town of Solidar. The small town has been a battleground for months. Russia sees victory there as an important piece of its push to capture the Donetsk region. And it would also allow Russian forces to cut off Ukrainian supplies to the contested city of Bakhmut. Ukraine insists it is still fighting for the town. Tanks and explosions were reported today. And at least three people are missing following yesterday's explosion at a fuel distribution company in Quebec. Search and rescue operations were conducted throughout the night, but police said today that the investigation is complex and will take days. We have some dangerous products on the scene. Uh, we have to be careful for the police officers that are searching on the scene. So it's going to take a couple of days. We advance every day uh, carefully so no one is injured. And uh, it's going to take a couple of days before we do the full expertise of the scene. So far, no deaths have been confirmed. The explosion happened Thursday morning at a family-run propane company in the La Naudière region, about 50 kilometers north of Montreal. The exact cause of the blast is unknown, but experts are investigating the possibility that a truck inside the facility exploded. And coming up, as concerns grow over Canada's strained health care system, what will force the premiers and the prime minister to get to the table to fix health care? Our Friday panel of strategists will join us to dig into that next. Here they are. Keep watching. Power Play will be right back. And welcome back. Who will fix Canada's health care system? Late last year, provincial health ministers and premiers talked tough on health care as the provinces and the feds failed to reach a deal to boost the federal health transfer. That's the money Ottawa sends to provinces to deliver health services. The premiers want the federal share of health funding to be increased from 22% to 35%. But the Trudeau government is open to boost but wants federal strings attached to that money. And this week, more premiers have warmed to the idea, including Doug Ford. So, is the standoff on health care thawing, or will the political impasse remain into the new year? Let's take this to our panel of strategists for the first strategy session of 2023. Greg McEachern from Proof Strategies leans liberal. Larissa Waller from GT and Company. She previously served as the head of communications for Ontario Premier Doug Ford and the national director of the NDP. And McGrath, yes, she leans NDP. Um, <laughs> thanks for being there. Uh, welcome to the three of you. Nice um, to have you. And to talk about a topic, look, that a lot of people are concerned and, you know, very concerned about. So... Larissa Waller, let me start with you. Premiers accepting money with conditions, strings attached, that is. Is that progress? I think that if you ask the premiers, and again, I think Premier Fury said it on your uh, program earlier today, that they're shared priorities. Um, 
Are they strings? Does it matter? If the money is there um, and and if the if the federal government's asking for things like improved wait times, better data, I think that's something that everybody can agree is important. I think there's a shared consensus that our healthcare system is broken. We've never spent more money and had poorer outcomes. And COVID really exacerbated a lot of these existing problems and showed huge cracks in our system. Um, so I think that, you know, however the money gets there, and the money seems to be coming with good things attached to it, you know, high, better wait times, better data. I think that that's a positive, and I'm really happy to see, you know, broad consensus and collaboration between the province and the federal government on this. So, Greg, this is something the federal government, or the Trudeau government, has wanted. We just want to give you money, and then it goes into general revenue. We don't know what happens. We are, or you give $500 checks to people or whatever, and you don't spend it on health care. But how do you see this working? I think I see a lot of similarities between this and the child care deal, where it's, it's, the, it's ideal for the Prime Minister's office, for the Prime Minister, to pick off the provinces. And what's happening is we're seeing that. You know, um, before the break, you talked about a, a U-turn that Premier Danielle Smith has done. You know, it reminds me of Atlanta, Canada. If you don't like the weather, wait five minutes. You know, wait five minutes on one of her positions. So she's kind of been the spoiler on this and has created problems for smaller jurisdictions. I was talking to somebody who had been around the Premier table uh, today um, and, and, you know, has some insight into this. Smaller jurisdictions are fine to go along with the other provinces. But when you see Doug Ford talking to the media saying, I'm fine with strings, smaller provinces are going to say, to hell with this, I've got to get my deal and I've got to get moving. I would imagine a small province like PEI is ready to go. And, you know, in terms of Nova Scotia, where I'm from, it's been a really huge tragedy. And Tim Houston is a very nice guy, but this is exactly why he was elected. It was on health care. And people know a bunch of money from the federal government is not going to solve the problems that we saw in Nova Scotia. Part of the problems I expect around uh, emergency rooms is that people don't have enough doctors. Yes. So they're not getting treated. They're waiting too long. And then it becomes a situation where they need to go to an ER and too many people are there. So I, I don't think people have a lot of patience for a lot of back and forth politics yeah. between the feds and, and, and the premiers. And, and, and as a premier of, of Ontario, said, look, there's only one taxpayer, that would be us, right, and the people listening to us. But And how, again, you know, the devil is in the details. How would this work? So you, picking provinces, so, okay, you, you agree. This is not like the, like the child care. It is, it is something a lot more complex. So the, did you, how, yeah. do you, this how is, do you do this? So this is, first of all, this is not a new movie. This is what has happened before, right? This is, I mean, when I was in government in Alberta, that is exactly what happened was that we were all here in Ottawa. We were negotiating. The provinces were united. By the time I got back to, Cal, to, to uh, Alberta, PEI had made a deal. New, New Brunswick was a couple of days later. Like, eventually, everybody came on board. So picking provinces off, that's not new. Um, and I, I think, though, while it's true that money isn't the only thing, money is part of the solution. Targeted money is very important. And one thing that we do not need in our healthcare system is profit. And so I'm very concerned about uh, Doug Ford and Danielle Smith and their attempts to try and change the healthcare system to introduce a level of profit. And we know what happens when profit is introduced into the healthcare system. We saw during the pandemic that it was the for-profit long-term care facilities that had the most tragic outcomes for seniors, including many, many avoidable deaths. But Larissa Waller, the, the Premier of Ontario is, is actually 
talking about these private clinics because there is such a backlog and he was talking about knee surgeries cataract hip replacements you know that kind of that kind of of of, of surgery is it is it is, is is it impossible to do that in Canada without it being turning into what Anne says these private you know private for profit places that turn into disasters it can work you know i think that People in Canada like to think we have a public health care system, and we don't. We never have. What we have is universal access. That means that you use your health card to pay for your service. Um, if you look at x-rays, if you look at blood labs, if you look at family doctors, walk-in clinics, getting your vaccine at a pharmacy, those are all private facilities. In some cases, they're nonprofit. In some cases, they're private. Um, they're part of our health care system. It makes sense to me to think that we would use existing capacity to help relieve this, the public system or, or public facilities like hospitals. What Ontario has said or has alluded to is that they're going to use independent health facilities, existing capacity right now. They're not going to expand it because they recognize that you have to go slowly. You have to take into account the human resource crunch. You know, we don't have enough doctors, exactly what Greg said in Nova Scotia. Ontario doesn't have enough doctors. Ontario doesn't have enough nurses. So while you're fixing that, you can't go ahead and blow the, the, the gates open to expanding into private healthcare facilities. What you can do is take a thoughtful approach, start like Ontario seems to be doing or, or, or might do next week, I don't know. Um, start with cataracts, go knees and hips, and, and see how that goes. But the idea that we have a public system is wrong. We have universal access. We always have, and that's going to continue. Okay, I have one minute left, but I want to hear both of you. Should avoiding private clinics be one of the federal strings for yes. the transfers? Yes, and, I think that, yeah. that, you know, they've been talking about conditions and strings attached. I think it absolutely should be part of, part of it. So you know, the federal government should put a kibosh on that? I think so. I think, you know, I, I think that starving the public system in order to soften the terrain for support for, for private for-profit uh, delivery is uh, antithetical to the Canada Health Act, and I think that we should be enforcing the Canada Health Act. When I saw a reaction this week from the Ontario Medical Association to this, they said the problem is when, you know, hospitals, when the medical community stops having oversight on this, that's the issue. And I think that's very key. I mean, yes, I've gotten my vaccine, as Larissa said, uh, at my pharmacy, but this seems to be a really huge jump really, really quickly. I'd like to listen to the experts first. And the yeah. experts are pretty well saying this is a bad idea. None well, you see, <laughs> it is food for thought and a conversation that I'm sure we'll all be having for the next months because this deal is not going to happen overnight. Greg McCarron, Larissa Waller, and McGrath, as usual, you're brilliant. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks. And coming up, we're only two weeks into the new year. Who knew it feels like a lot longer? The last year's travel turmoil haunted airlines executives at a tense committee this week. The press gallery digs into that and more with their political plays and misplays. Stay right here. And welcome back. From the North American Leaders Summit to a committee digging into the disastrous holiday travel season, another week in politics comes to a close. 
So who walked away with a win this week? <laughs> Nobody. And who stumbled? Let's bring in the press gallery. Joining me now are CTV News senior digital parliamentary reporter Rachel Aiello. She writes the Capital Dispatch newsletter, Must Read, Toronto Star columnist Susan Delacorte, another Must Read, and our special guest Greg Weston from Searchlight Strategy Group. Nice to see you all. Happy Friday. Happy Good to have you and Happy, happy New Year. We're still allowed to say that, right? I think so. Um, until, you know, that's it after this. <laughs> um, Rachel, I'm going to start with you. And um, you have a misplay, but before your misplay, we want to hear and listen to this. Was he wrong then? And, and uh, what, what changed uh, if he wasn't? Well, let me say, Glenn, that this is a highly complex procurement. It represents the most significant investment in the RCAF in 30 years. And since 2015, the aircraft has matured. So uh, there are maturing aircrafts. That's Apparently. good. So Talk to us. This is your misplay. Yeah, so I'm giving my misplay specifically to the Prime Minister for Justin Trudeau not fronting this F-35 announcement. Of course, as soon as this announcement was made by Anand this week, we were all drawn back to that promise, that very clear promise the Prime Minister made years ago saying we will not buy these jets. And I just thought it was a missed opportunity for the Prime Minister to show some leadership and front this. Instead, he sent Anand out to try to explain this, you know, they have matured and we did this open process. And I think it fell kind of flat. And for me, Joyce, it's a misplay for two reasons. One, it was just another example of the Prime Minister seemingly throwing a female cabinet minister <laughs> out there to try to explain his broken promises. Uh, and two, it actually reminded me of uh, when he was giving Polyev a bit of a grilling at that liberal Christmas party he was saying you know win or lose like leaders take it all leaders kind of front the decisions and it seems that he's forgotten that because I think this was probably a good opportunity for him to kind of you know as the leader wear it and he chose not to I think people are forgiving when leaders do this too I don't think people are as stupid as as uh, sometimes all the political strategists think they are I think if Trudeau had come out and said I've changed my mind no that no. Uh, uh, it was a mistake I he did it on democratic reform, right? We yeah. were talking about that. Um, I, I agree. It's uh, it's it's high time, I think, that leaders sort of take take ownership, and especially Trudeau after yeah, seven and say, years. I mean, yeah, I changed my mind. There's nothing wrong with that. God knows we change our mind. Did they really improve the F-35 so much in the last seven years? I think everybody wants to fly a mature jet. I mean, whatever that is, I don't know. I'd rather not fly an immature jet. <laughs> I mean, come on. Okay, so poor Anita Anand is put out there to explain the inexplicable, um, and uh, she is one of the ministers probably with the highest, one of the highest credibility, um, public credibility in, in the government. And she struggled. I felt kind of sorry for her. But hey, he's got a long way to go to beat his predecessor, Jean Chrétien, who canceled those helicopters. And it took 15 years of saying, they're dead, they're dead, they're dead, they're dead. And they kept picking it, <laughs> kept picking them again. And we ended up buying them in the end. The and all we did was waste billions but, but, of dollars. But, but in, in truth, so we're, we're hearing that they actually, there was an improvement. You know, it's sort of like our iPhones, same thing. That's how it was explained to me. Because I'm, you know, obviously not a jet expert. Uh, that, you know, things do improve. But it's seven years later, here we are with a, minute, a prime minister who changed his mind. And, yeah, 
asked uh, somebody else, hey, do you want to go up there and, yeah. and do it? Uh, Susan Delacorte, you, you also have a misplay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I do. Um, I couldn't help but notice that 11 top airline and airport executives came to testify before a parliamentary committee and more than half of them chose not to fly here. Yeah, they don't trust their own system. <laughs> yeah, what an expression of faith in yeah. the Canadian travel system that they chose to appear virtually. I think this was supposed to be a big day of reckoning for them, and I don't want to be too hard on them. It's, it's beat up the airlines month in Canada, and I, I, you know, it was not going to be an easy ride, but I do think WestJet showed up, they came, they sat down, looked the parliamentarians in the eye and I think that was what Canadians needed to see. I'm not sure that it was again the yeah. best expression of confidence and, and in, we, in and the airline. And we see them there in, in, in that's where they were. They stayed in their office. Yeah. Maybe they were afraid that their plane would be cancelled <laughs> like that NDP MP, my favorite uh, moment. Backrack, who my, said oh look at that my, my, my favorite plane to BC was cancelled yeah. while he was on the committee. <laughs> To me, it was also interesting, not all MPs were there in person either. Um, MPs who live a lot closer to Ottawa than the NDP, Taylor Backrack. To me, the other part of the shortcoming, I think, from the hearings yesterday was uh, why are we solely focusing this conversation on fixing the Air Passenger Bill of Rights and don't worry, when your flight is cancelled or delayed, we'll just make sure you get your um, you know, reimbursement quicker. Why are we not trying to have a conversation more so about fixing the problem that so you don't cancel all these flights in the first place. Like some of the airlines tried to get at that, talking about infrastructure announcements and stuff. But the, the minister, Al Gabra, really seemed focused more on making sure Canadians are compensated when it happens and less about trying to prevent it from happening in the first place, which I thought was kind of peculiar. So you think we're losing, uh, you know, confidence, faith in our airlines? Well, you know, that, that old joke about the Canadian airline industry, their motto is, we're not happy till you're not happy. <laughs> uh, you know, it's, it, um, uh, we just keep seeing it playing out over and over again. Uh, a complete disaster uh, following COVID uh, in the fall. But they haven't really... And, and uh, you know, once again, okay, we had uh, bad weather at, at, at Christmas time, but why is it people keep getting shafted by this. I want to I get to your misplay because you also have a misplay and we have 30 seconds, I'm told. <laughs> okay, Quick. well, my misplay is exactly that. It's a pox on, on governments and, and, and for decades, governments have failed to take on the Canadian airline industry. At the end of the day, every time they decide to, to put the screws to the Canadian airline industry, they get, oh, okay, so we'll raise uh, consumer prices and we'll cut the routes and government backs down. And uh, it'll be interesting to see uh, the current minister has said, we're going to fix this. Uh, uh, minister Oga um, Omar Al-Gabra has said, we're going to fix this. Yeah. Uh, we'll see. And Don't hold your breath. Yeah. Well, then we can, at least we're sitting down while we wait. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Rachel Ayello, Susan Delacourt, Greg Weston, thanks. Thanks for being there. And that is your Power Play Week in Politics. Thank you for spending your time with us. We'll be back right here on Monday. And now we're going to hand you over to our colleague, Angie Seth, in Toronto. Have a great weekend.